0: You can take your Bibles and turn them to Genesis chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, scattered throughout under the chairs are these uh, nice new black hardcover Bibles that were recently uh, purchased for the church. I love these, and um, uh, they're large print, which is good for people like me. And you can have one if you don't own a Bible. Feel free to take this home with you. It's our gift to you. Genesis chapter 20. In the 18th century, uh, there arose one of the most influential figures in church history, uh, John Wesley. Uh, Wesley had an extensive uh, ministry career, preaching both in England and America, including right here in Georgia. He was a chaplain in Savannah. Uh, and the impact of Wesley's ministry continues to be felt today in the United Methodist Church and in Wesleyan theology that has influenced various denominations. But one of the negative aspects of his impact was a theological error known as perfectionism, uh, this idea that a believer, if he strives hard enough in this life, can be perfect. It's probably the most controversial teaching of Wesley's, and it caused a rift between him and his evangelist friend George Whitfield. Uh, Whitfield actually met one of Wesley's followers once who claimed that he had not sinned in thought, word, or deed for three months. In fact, this man affirmed that it was impossible for him to sin. Uh, Whitfield also met a woman who claimed she had been perfect for an entire year, during which time she did not commit any sin. And when he asked her if she had any pride, she brazenly answered, no. while it is true that a Christian is to pursue holiness, and while believers should expect to grow in the Lord, we aren't told to expect perfection before heaven. In fact, the Apostle John, writing as an older, experienced believer who had much to say about the necessity of holiness for the believer in the book of First John, he also wrote in that same book that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's First John eight. That verse would have been a good one to to quote to that lady who said she hadn't sinned for a year. Uh, Or consider the self-assessment of the Apostle Paul, surely a man holier than most, certainly a man holier than me, who said in Philippians 3.12, not that I am already perfect, So not even the Apostle Paul could live up to Wesley's teachings. Or consider Abraham, Uh, you would think that if anyone uh, would achieve a state of sinless perfection… It would be him. The Bible holds up Abraham as exemplary in his faith. He's called the father of all who believe, who believed in God's promises, and the Scriptures tell us that his belief was counted to him as righteousness, and so Abraham becomes a model for all who would believe and be saved. Surely, in Abraham, we would see somebody reaching sinless perfection, and indeed, Uh, These past few chapters in the book of Genesis, we've seen this over the past several weeks, uh, Abraham's been looking really good. In chapters 17 and 18, Abraham embraces the promise of God that he's had some difficulty believing in, namely that he and his wife, uh, in their old age, would miraculously have a son through whom God would keep His promise to save the world. In chapter 19, we read of God's devastating judgment upon the evil city of Sodom. But Abraham's nephew Lot is rescued due to the prayers of Abraham, who's seen as a righteous intercessor on behalf of Lot. And so now in chapter 20, you'd expect that the next story would be yet another spiritual high note in Abraham's life, uh, the birth of, of the promised son in response to Abraham's great faith. But when we turn the page to chapter 20, it's not a birth story. It's a story of failure as he sinks to a major spiritual low. Even Abraham, as faithful and as obedient as he was, nevertheless struggles with besetting sins. We all know something about besetting sins, don't we? You know what a besetting sin is, a sin that keeps coming back to haunt us, sins that are more difficult to shake than maybe some other sins? And so, in that sense, Genesis 20 is going to teach us a valuable lesson about the life of faith. Not simply because of what it says about Abraham and how we might learn from his mistakes, but also because of what it says about God and how He responds to our mistakes, to our sins. Uh, indeed, John Calvin says that here in Genesis 20, the Holy Spirit presents to us a remarkable instance both of the infirmity of man and of the grace of God. We're going to see and learn from uh, both of those things this morning, the infirmity of man and the grace of God. So, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We're in Genesis chapter 20, and we'll read the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. "'From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, "'She is my sister.' Then God said to him in his dream, "'Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid.' though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, "'This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother.' Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, "'Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you.' To Sarah he said, "'Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver.' It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this word in Genesis chapter 20, an ancient word, Uh, detailing a strange story. And Father, I pray that You would take that old word and that strange story and that You would uh, help us to understand what it means and what it means for us today, here, and now, because every word in Your Scriptures is relevant and true and powerful. And I pray that Your Word this morning would both convict and encourage in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, as I was reading Genesis 20, you may have thought, wait a minute, this sounds like something we've read before. <laughs> uh, there's a, some deja vu going on here, isn't there? Our Redeemer, maybe you picked the wrong text. Uh, The reason this rings familiar for you is because uh, way back in Genesis 12, 25 years prior to this event, we read about Abraham doing the exact same thing, entering into a new land, being afraid for his life, engaging in lies and deception to protect himself, saying, "'She is my sister.'" Sarah trapped in a dangerous situation, God having to come in and clean up Abraham's mess, and Abraham, the man of God, being rebuked by a pagan ruler. It's all there in Genesis 12, and it's deja vu all over again in chapter 20. It's another major failure in the life of Abraham, the man of faith. And and what we discover is yet another proof of the great truth that the best of men are men at best. Even a great man of faith like Abraham is vulnerable to failure. But from his failure, we can draw three important spiritual lessons. And the first one, I'll spend most of my time on the first one. Uh, The first one is uh, the inconsistency of the saints, the inconsistency of the saints. Uh, Verse 1 says that from there, Abraham journeyed. Now, Abraham had been... um, uh, for a long time settled in the land that God had promised to him and his offspring, the land of Canaan. He, he doesn't really own the land. He's still living there by faith and waiting for the final fulfillment of those promises. So, right now, he's a tent dweller. He's a resident alien, but he, specifically, he's been in Hebron, which has served as a kind of Abraham's home base, and he's been there for quite some time. But for whatever reason, the chapter opens now with him packing up his tents and going into the region of Gerar, which is still in Canaan, but it's further south. And and we don't know specifically why he is relocating, but what we do know is that after a time of relative stability and security and a sense of peace and safety, Abraham now finds himself moving into an unknown and unfamiliar situation where there is less security and less predictability. And in facing a new chapter in his life with new uncertainties, his faith was challenged. And the question before Abraham, moving into this new uncertain situation, the question before him is, how now shall I walk? Shall I walk into this situation being clothed in faith and trusting God, or shall I walk into the situation based on fear and trusting in my own resources and ingenuity as opposed to what God has said and what God has promised? And friends, that really is the primary question that every single one of us has to face when an unsettling change or circumstance comes into our lives. Uh, you're going through life, you, you're, uh, you're in a certain routine, you become comfortable in that, and suddenly a change happens that completely upsets that routine. And when the circumstances of life unsettle us and shake us up and squeeze us, we learn in that moment what is really in our hearts like a sponge that's full of water. Uh, That sponge could just be sitting there on the counter, and it looks dry, but when you take that sponge and you squeeze it, what happens? Suddenly the water starts coming out, and and your squeezing of the sponge did not create the water. There was water there all along, but the squeezing suddenly reveals the water that was already there. That's exactly how it works with our hearts. On the outside, you may look fine, you may look pretty holy and righteous and faithful to God. You look good on Sunday morning, and you really do. I'm looking at you right now. You, you, uh, you serve in the ministry. You talk about the Lord. You read your Bible and all that's terrific. That's good. But when the circumstances of life change and the comfortable routines of life are shaken up, when we lose the job, when our best friends move away, When a marriage falls dreadfully short of what you had hoped, when a friend betrays us, when a church lets us down, it is in those moments that the things of the heart are tested and exposed, and the things that we are really putting our trust and hope in are suddenly revealed. As those circumstances begin to squeeze your heart. As that happens, whatever is in your heart will come out of your heart. And because we have sin in our heart, because no one here is perfect, often what comes out is ugly. And Abraham in this moment is being squeezed, he's going into a new situation an uncertain situation. He's unsettled about what's happening, and what is in his heart is being revealed. Abraham has not reached a state of sinless perfection, and and as this new circumstance squeezes him, an old, undealt-with sin that still remains in his heart comes out, and often in our lives. Uh, even if we've had significant victory over many other sins, often when we are squeezed by life circumstances, it is then when those old besetting sins reveal their ugly heads once again. It's like your, your go-to sin, uh, your, your pet sin, the sin that you find the most comfort in, the most security in. Other sins may fall by the wayside, but but for whatever reason, this one has its claws deep in your heart. Now, for Abraham... That sin was manifested in a fearful paranoia in regards to his own life being taken on account of his beautiful wife. Uh, And so, when they reach the region of Gerar, verse 2, it says, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, Sarah is in her 90s, but she has evidently maintained that unusual beauty that she is described as having back in chapter 12. Uh, Many people try to give all kinds of explanations, you know, for this. Uh, you know, Calvin is a blunt. He says, well, I've seen, you know, women in their 40s who are more wrinkled than women in their 70s. So, so you know, it's, it's possible. But I, I think that simply it's attributed to just the longevity uh, of, the, of the patriarchs. Sarah lives to be 127. So, when you're 90, you still have a long way to go. And, uh, and some say that, well, maybe God also is just rejuvenating Sarah physically. She is about to have the promised child, so maybe some of that is happening as well. But regardless of all of that, uh, she is uh, desirable enough that uh, Abimelech sees her and takes her into his household. And so Abraham finds himself right back in, t- in that same situation that we found him 25 years prior in Egypt in Genesis 12 as Sarah once again is taken from Abraham and brought into the household of another man. It's hard to imagine Abraham having not foreseen that this might happen after the events of chapter 12. But what's the saying? Uh, Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We know Abraham isn't insane, but our sinful hearts drive us to do insane, irrational things. And Abraham is being squeezed, and what is revealed in chapter 20 is that despite the growth in Abraham's faith in many ways, there are other ways where he still lacks faith. He battles unbelief. In fact, if you look down uh, to verse 13, look at what Abraham admits. He says, "'And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, "'This is the kindness you must do me. "'At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother.'" Now, Abraham's admission in verse 13 indicates that what happened in Egypt and what happened in Gerar were not isolated incidences. This was their practice wherever they went, whenever they traveled. This was a pattern of sin that Abraham cultivated over the years, and so whenever they came to a new place, Abraham felt unsafe and threaten, and his fear drove him to lie and scheme and manipulate to save his own skin, even at the expense of his wife's own safety and virtue. And don't buy Abraham's lame justification in verse 12. She's my half-sister. It's a half-truth, and therefore it's a lie. And so, this was an ongoing besetting sin of Abraham, heedless of what might happen to Sarah, heedless of how it reflected on him and his witness, and and most importantly, and this is the crux of the issue, heedless of the Word and the promises of God. Had not God promised back in Genesis chapter 12 when the story first began that He would bless all who blessed Abraham, but those who held Abraham in low esteem would be cursed? That's a pretty good protection clause, isn't it? So why is Abraham afraid? Or how about in chapter 15 when God promised Abraham, Fear not, I will be your shield. Abraham had all these wonderful promises and assurances from God. And it's at this point that we begin to drill down to the heart of the matter. At the core of Abraham's sin was not lying and deception or disregarding his wife or being afraid of others. Those were sins for sure but they were the fruit of a deeper sin embedded in his heart. Let's change the illustration from squeezing a sponge to a tree. Um, Biblical counselor David Pallison compares the Christian life to a tree. And when the heat of the sun bears down on that tree, and the heat, by the way, represents the difficult circumstances of life, when the heat comes to the tree and bears down on that tree, the tree then brings forth fruit. Could be good fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit, or rotten fruit, which is the sinful actions we commit. And where does the bad fruit come from? Well, Jesus says the bad fruit comes from a bad tree. You'll know a tree by its fruit. So if the fruit is rotten, where is the main problem? Is it ultimately with the fruit? No. Uh, Is it with the circumstances that we usually blame for our sinful responses? No. It's with the tree itself, and going deeper, it's with the root system of the tree, which in Pallison's model represents the heart, and in the heart are the things that we want and believe the most, and if the root is bad, guess what? The fruit will be bad. If you're you're dealing with anger, lust, lying, whatever it might be, uh, those things are the fruit that's pointing to something that has gone wrong in the root system of your heart. And if we inspect the root system, we're going to find that the root of our sin is some sort of unbelief. Very often, what we'll find is that we're not believing that God is good or that He's good enough. Uh, He's not good in the sense that He's not totally reliable in regards to His promises or he's not good enough in the sense that he's not sufficient to meet whatever need that we are feeling in that moment, whether it's a need for safety and security, or strength, or peace, or fulfillment, or some other need. We don't believe that that God is sufficient to meet that need, And, and that produces then rotten fruit of all kinds of sins in our lives as we try to meet those needs another way. And at the core of Abraham's problem is a doubting of God's protection and a doubting of God's provision, whether God's word could be totally trusted, whether God would really care for him, and indeed doubting the goodness of God in his life and in all of his circumstances. Abraham did not look at the situation in light of the goodness of God. He looked at it in light of his own fears. That really was at the core of his besetting sin, and we know what that's like. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Don't be anxious about your life. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air and see how God provides for them. Look at how He cares even for the lilies of the field. How much more will He take care of you? And so, and we have those wonderful promises, and how do we respond to that? Well, we're anxious about our lives all the time. Uh, how often do you and I collapse in a tangle of fear and doubt when we, when we look at the bills and we look at our income and we're not seeing how it's going to work? How often are we afraid of certain circumstances or people? Yet Jesus says, don't fear people. If not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father, how much more is God watching over you in this situation? And you are worth more than many sparrows. We amen that. But when the heat is on and we're being really squeezed, how are your responses and how are my responses revealing what we really believe in our hearts? And that's, that's come out in my own life this week. Uh, this past week has been a challenging week for me in, in many ways. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been all that bad, but I'm a wimp, and so I guess it doesn't take much. And as I'm going through the challenges of, the, of this past week and and looking ahead to other challenges coming, what was coming out of my heart was ugly. It was not good. Uh, there, there was some anger. There was some some impatience there. There, there was some uh, grumbling. There's some fear going on there. Now, I, I was fine a few weeks ago when none of this stuff was going on. Do I blame the circumstances? No. Uh, those things that were coming out of my heart were, they had been in my heart to begin with. But I needed a little squeezing for me to see that, for those things to come out and be exposed. We all battle with these things. We battle with unbelief. And battling unbelief, it, that doesn't mean that we become atheists. Instead, what it means is is that when the heat comes, instead of trusting in God's care and provision and word, we instead, as Calvin says, trust in our own counsels and our own interpretation of reality, evaluating the situation apart from the wisdom and the promises of God's word, and we instead lean on our own understanding and on our own wisdom. Isn't that what Abraham did? Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought… There's no fear of God at all in this place. They'll kill me because of my wife. I did it because I thought. I thought. That's the problem. That there's so much wrong with Abraham's thinking in verse 11, and wrong thinking produces wrong living. One of, the, one of the biggest problems Christians have is that they sit around and they listen way too much to their own fearful and panicking thoughts. And not enough to God's reassuring thoughts and God's promises that are found in His Word. Because in our hearts, we still struggle to believe what is really true. The Bible says, think on things that are true. When the heat is on, and when we're being squeezed too often, we stop up our ears to the truth and we listen to lies and we act on them. I know, because I do it. And I take some comfort in Genesis 20 not comfort in the sense of being complacent about my own sin, but that in reading about Abraham, this great man of faith, I'm reminded that I'm not alone, and I'm reminded that the best of men are men at best, and ultimately our hope must be placed not in ourselves, but in God who has mercy. More on that in a little bit. But the next thing I want us to think about after the inconsistency of the saints, our inconsistent walk with God, also there's the widespread impact of our sin, Whenever you are inconsistent in your faith and you fall into sin, you have to know that your sin is never just your sin. Uh, Your sin never just affects you, but those around you. Uh, Ian Duguid writes that we have enormous impact on those around us for good or evil. Uh, You can make it easier for them to live out their faith, or you can make it harder. Which of these describes you? Within the family circle, are you the one who guides others to God and trust in Him? Are you a positive influence on your friends or or just one of the gang? Uh, We have a responsibility as friends, spouses, parents, and church members to see that our presence brings people closer to God and does not lead them into the folly of sin. And so, whenever you sin, it's like dropping a rock into a pond, and there are ripple effects that emanate outward from that sin, and the closer someone is to you, the more they will be impacted. And so, first and foremost, Sarah is impacted by Abraham's sin. Abraham's stubbornness in not dealing with this besetting sin now has put Sarah at extreme risk, and she's taken into the household of the king. Abraham had to know, he had to know uh, that this was a possibility because something like this happened at least once before. And yet, The desires of Abraham's heart to secure for himself in his own strength peace and safety and security in his own way, his desire for those things, overrode his common sense, and so he sins again. And in so doing, he drags Sarah into sin with him. Uh, He's not concerned that that he is leading Sarah away from trust in God, undermining her own faith in God. Abraham pressures Sarah to sin. Remember how he put it in verse 13, he said to his wife this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. That is horribly selfish. If you love me, you'll do this thing. I know you'll be putting yourself at risk, and I know you'll be sinning against God, but hey, it's me. You love me, right? Uh, This is horribly manipulative. This is Abraham at his worst. And because of his influence over his wife, she goes along with it. I'm sure she didn't like it would you, wives, like that? So, Abraham sins and pulls her into the sin as well. And this should serve as a warning for those of us who are husbands and the powerful influence that we have over our wives. Don't get me wrong, our wives are responsible before God for their own walk with God. Ultimately, our wives will answer to God on their own But the Bible nevertheless gives men a weighty responsibility in leading and guiding and shepherding their wives in the faith. Ephesians 5 says, "'Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her.'" And to what end? Well, it goes on to say, "'That He might sanctify her.'" having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." That's a big deal, guys. Your husbandry is to model the husbandry of Christ who laid down his life for his bride the church with the purpose of sanctifying her, making her holy. Through the washing of water with the Word. That's the main way, men, that you love your wives. To daily and self-sacrificially forget yourself and serve your wife. Not just through doing the dishes. Yes, do the dishes, please. But Ephesians 5 is saying more than that. Uh, you're going to serve your wife through, through speaking and leading her into the truth of God's Word. To help her to be spiritually clean and growing in holiness. Your home is to be Bible centered, word centered. You're to lead the way in making sure that your family is rooted in the Word of God. You're going to make decisions for your home that are grounded in its principle and in its promises. You're going to encourage your wife to navigate life on the basis of what God says. And to do that, guys, that means you've got to be rooted in the Scriptures yourselves. It doesn't mean you have to be smarter than your wife, it just means you have to be faithful faithful in your walk with God. And to the degree where you are battling unbelief in your own life, you put your own wife and her walk with God at risk. Abraham's unbelief drags his wife down with him. See, single ladies in this congregation, if you want to get married one day, keep that in mind. If you want to grow in your own faith, you want a man who loves Jesus and His Word more than He loves you. You want a man who will guide you in your home into truth, not a perfect man, there are none, but one whose trajectory is bending in the direction of God and His Word. Well, as the ripple effects of Abraham's sin move outward, it doesn't just affect him and it doesn't just affect Sarah, it affects Abimelech and his household. And we learn from verse 17 and 18. That Abimelech and the entire house are struck with some sort of ailment which prevented anyone from having children, which suggests to me that Sarah was in Abimelech's home for a while, maybe even weeks, for uh, because people would have had to have time to realize that uh, people were unable now to have children, and Abraham's doing nothing about this. He's just letting it go on. He's letting the lie continue. And so, God must do something drastic to rectify the situation, and He does. In verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. That's pretty drastic. Now, in the ancient Near East, in some cultures, adultery was considered a heinous crime. It was considered a gross sin, worthy of punishment. And Abimelech seems to get that. And he confronts Abraham now in verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, "'What have you done to me? What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done.'" That's a verse worth highlighting, where the man of God is rebuked by the pagan ruler. Abimelech had more concern and sensitivity for the integrity of Sarah's marriage to Abraham than Abraham did. Abimelech is shocked. He's scandalized by what Abraham has done and and seems to demonstrate more fear of God in this moment than Abraham. And and this is another sad way that Abraham's sin is having an impact, is having an impact on his witness for God. Here you are, Abraham, you're a And God said in my dream that you're a prophet, and so I'll take God's word for it, but Abraham, I don't see any evidence of it in your life after what you've done to me. And that should be a challenge to us. That should be a challenge to the people of God today. Uh, We're not prophets, but we are representatives of God in the world, charged with speaking God's word to the world. And yet, does our lifestyle, does our behavior, does our engagement with the world undermine our witness? Friends, we're to watch our lives carefully because the world is watching our lives. In fact, the New Testament says, don't just avoid evil, but even the appearance of evil. So are there things going on in your life and and in my life that may cause our our lost friends and and neighbors, our co-workers in the office to be shocked? Uh, Would they say, you're doing things that shouldn't be done? Uh, Are there things going on in your life that that you're covering up and keeping secret that if they were exposed, uh, it would scandalize even unbelievers? May it not be so. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk according to, not to your old way of life and your old nature, walk according to your new identity. And that takes deliberate, conscious effort. And Paul then goes on to say after that, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But Abraham, but, it, but instead of Abraham exposing the works of darkness, Abraham has a lapse of faith. He walks in darkness and now finds himself exposed. Abraham was a man charged by God to bless the nations. But in his sin, he's bringing a curse upon the household of Abimelech. And so we see the widespread impact of sin. But finally, we also see the intervening grace of God. While Abraham may have had doubts about the goodness and the provision of God, um, the goodness and provision of God actually become a prevailing theme in this chapter. The sin and the darkness and the confusion of chapter 20 serves as the backdrop that makes the beautiful grace of God shine all the more brilliantly. And we see God being good and gracious to everyone in this whole affair. He's good and gracious to Sarah. Sarah. Despite the fact that she was following the leadership of her husband, Sarah was still responsible for her part in this mess. She went along with the lies and the deception. She didn't have to do that. Uh, While the Bible says wives are to be submissive to the leadership of their husbands, the authority of God always trumps the authority of husbands. And Sarah would have been on biblical grounds to refuse to obey her husband and instead say, I will obey God rather than man. She didn't do that. She went along with the ruse. But God is gracious to Sarah. And God does what Abraham should have done all along. He protects Sarah. Verse 4 says that Abimelech had not yet approached her. And before he did, God came in and intervened and protected Sarah's virtue and the sanctity of her marriage with Abraham. God's also good to Abimelech. He prevents the king from unknowingly taking another man's wife and ultimately protects him from Abraham's foolishness. God is also gracious in that He reveals Himself to a pagan king. Uh, Abraham, who is charged to bless the nations, he should have been proclaiming the one true God to Abimelech. But he fails in that responsibility. But God is actually gracious enough to speak to Abimelech, and we can only hope that this may have been a catalyst for the the king himself coming to saving faith in God. But finally, God is good and gracious to Abraham in many ways. It is noteworthy that God, in verse 7, calls Abraham a prophet. That's the first time that that term is used in the Bible, and shockingly, it's used of Abraham in the wake of Abraham's abysmal failure. And yet what we learn here is that God never cast away His people. He regards Abraham as a prophet, and Abraham's sin doesn't change that. And God deals with Abraham not according to Abraham's faithfulness, but according to Abraham's identity in God. Same is true of Christians today. When you and I sin, God doesn't cast us away. He treats us still as beloved sons and daughters of God because He's always faithful to His own. As the Scriptures say, when we are faithless, He is faithful. God is also gracious to Abraham in that He brings about reconciliation between Abraham and Abimelech. He comes in and He fixes up this mess. Uh, He has Abraham participate in making things right by praying for Abimelech. God didn't have to do that. God could have just automatically went in and and healed uh, Abimelech. But God says, no, 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 Abraham, now you, you're responsible for this. You're going to minister to Abimelech. You're going to pray for him now. You're going to be involved in this process of restoration and reconciliation. And Abimelech blesses Abraham with sheep and oxen and servants and an invitation to stay in the land. And it turns out that the things that Abraham feared happening were completely untrue, like so much of what we fear. God is gracious to Abraham and that he gets to live in a in, in the land in peace and security, which is what Abraham wanted all along. But Abraham trying to get that his own way didn't work and it made things worse. But in the wake of Abraham's failure, God steps in and blesses Abraham anyway. Abraham is still being blessed, which shows, shows us that in God's economy, and this is really important, in God's economy. God ultimately deals with His people, not on the basis of our perfect righteousness, but based on His free, sovereign grace. Another way that God is good to Abraham is that He does not let Abraham remain in this sin, but rather exposes it through the test of difficult circumstances. We never like our sin to be exposed. But you know, when God exposes your sin, that's the goodness of God at work. That's the grace of God when He exposes and reveals your sin. We, we, we don't like our faith being tested, but, it, but that's the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that brings about the trials of our faith. That's why James says in James chapter 1 that we should rejoice in our trials because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. In other words, it produces greater faithfulness. And every test that God brings into Abraham's life, even the test that he fails, is serving a greater purpose. We are getting closer now to Genesis 22, where Abraham is going to face the biggest test of his life, and everything that has happened in his life before then, even the events of our story today, everything that's happened thus far is preparing him for that great test which he's actually going to pass, spoiler alert, he's going to pass that in Genesis 22. He's going to pass it with flying colors when in a situation where his back is up against the wall, he's going to say, the Lord will provide. And you see, that was Abraham's biggest challenge throughout his life. Is God really good? Will He provide for me what I need? And in the midst of his failure in Genesis 20, he again learns the valuable lesson that he doesn't have to lie and scheme and manipulate, try to make things happen on his own. He doesn't have to worry about whether God is going to protect him or not, whether God's going to deliver on his promises or not. He doesn't have to help God out because the Lord will provide. Now, the chapter ends on an interesting and important note. Verse 17 says, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech Also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. Now that's important because it's a reminder that the Lord is the one who opens and closes the womb, which is going to set us up for the next chapter, where we will see after all of these years finally. I know you feel like it's taken a long time for us to get here. Took Abraham even longer. Isaac. The promised offspring of Abraham and Sarah will finally come. That's next chapter. And and we discover that after all the ups and downs, and after all the highs and lows, and after all the victories and failures of His imperfect, inconsistent servants, there is only one thing that can be consistently relied upon, and that is that God is always good. He is always faithful to keep his promises. God will not be deterred from his mission to save the world because through Abraham will come Isaac, and through Isaac will come Israel, and through Israel will come Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. The only servant of God who was perfect, the only one who went his whole life without sinning, who saved the world both through his righteous life so that any who believe in this perfect man would have his perfection applied to them, so that believers may be seen by God as perfectly acceptable. And he saved the world through his sacrificial death, so that all who believe in him should have his death applied to them, which releases the believer from the judgment of eternal death and hell, since that price was paid for by Christ. In the midst of an inconsistent people, God is always consistent, always faithful, always 100% reliable, and He ultimately proves it by giving us Christ, the perfect man who is perfect on our behalf. Perfection is not found in you striving for it. It is found in the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.